Good morning. It's great to be with you. I was thinking about this, you know, I served in Victoria for 13 years. And uh, after that, I uh, was in Ladner for another 13 years. And now I've been back here in Victoria for about six years. And this is the first time I'm preaching in Christ Community Church here. What happened? All those years. Anyway, it's really great to be with you. And I'm really happy that uh, I can share God's word with you uh, this morning. And, uh, you know, Pastor Chelsea is pretty demanding. She gave me a bunch of texts and says, you got to preach on one of these. That was nasty. I know. It's all in good fun. Anyway, we're going to read um, John 12, beginning at verse 20. Now, Pastor Chelsea tells me that there are some Bibles in the back. You might find that helpful as we go through this message. And by the way, there will be a few notes on the uh, sermon notes uh, accompanied with this message as well. Just uh, highlight some points uh, in the message. So just keep all that in mind. So, John 12, beginning at verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew, and um, Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. And Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, literally, amen, amen, I say to you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, the hour of glorification. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there and heard it said, said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment in this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become children of light. 
And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. This is the word of the Lord. I realize through Pastor Chelsea that you've been working on a Lent series, and you're, you're, uh, but I don't know how much time you've really spent, if at all, on the Gospel of John. But I'd like to make a few introductory remarks which I think are important in terms of the, the, this overall message. John, the Gospel, is a Gospel with a well-intentioned structure, and that's important for us to take note of. For example... There are several I am sayings in the Gospel of John. Each of these I am sayings, in turn, is spoken, according to John, within one or other of the Old Testament feasts that Israel celebrated. One of them, for example, is I am the light of the world. We'll get back to that a little bit later in this message. Events. Events, not only sayings, but also events are, spoke, are, are, are illustrated in John in the context of one or other of those feasts as well. And that brings us to our scripture reading for this morning in particular. But the one thing we didn't read comes prior to that, and that's this. That John 12 tells us that it was six days before the Old Testament feast of Passover, six days before the Passover feast. And then at John 12, verse 12, we see that a great crowd had come for the feast, the feast of Passover. And when they heard the crowd, when they heard that Jesus was on his way from Bethany, of course, that was the place where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, When they heard that Jesus was coming from Bethany to Jerusalem, well, they took palm branches and they began their Hosanna shouts. And literally, Hosanna means something like, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. Now, the palm branches added a nice touch in this way. Like our national flag, the maple leaf, or the stars and stripes in the United States, the palm branches were a symbol of nationalism, a symbol of patriotism, nationalism. And you right away begin to sense where this is going, right? The crowd shouting Hosanna is looking for a national savior. Something we tend to do also, we, with, we try to choose prime ministers or presidents, I guess. We somehow think that that person is going to save our nation, is going to save our world. You see, these, this crowd, these people, they interpreted Jesus' coming, journey to Jerusalem. They interpreted it as Jesus was now going to come and he was going to establish a new national era. For God's Old Testament people, Israel. A new era in Israel's national life. So people are pumped. They're filled with enthusiasm. All that kind of stuff. But then, then we have the spiritual leaders of Israel. In particular, the Pharisees. 
the spiritual leaders, they weren't exactly happy what was going on. Kind of paraphrasing, they're basically looking at each other saying, you know what, guys? This thing is getting out of hand. Look, the whole world is coming after him. Enter the Greeks. Right at that point. The Greeks kind of symbolic of that whole world. The Greeks were quite influential in the world in those days. And, and so the, all of a sudden the Greeks are entering into the scene. The Greeks, the world. And interestingly enough, they had also come to Jerusalem to worship at the feast. And again, what feast? Passover. The Passover feast. And when they and when they when they heard that Jesus was coming, they that they they wanted to see Jesus. They really wanted to see the one they had heard so much about. And then when Jesus finds out about this through a couple of his disciples, when he finds out about this, he responds in a rather weird fashion, doesn't he? You know, Jesus. These Greeks, they want to see you. And then Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You'd expect Jesus to say something like, Well, bring them on. Let them see me. Let me talk to them. But no. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What did Jesus mean? What did he mean? You see, in the Gospel of John, the hour of Jesus' glorification, the hour or the time period, if you will, which is summarized in the word hour, that time period encompasses his death his resurrection, and his ascension. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the first stage of that glorification, obviously, is his death and his burial, through which he would, re- he would reveal what I will call his glory, glory being uh, meaning his redeeming presence. Just like the cloud of glory in the Old Testament was the redeeming presence of Israel as Israel wandered through the the wilderness, uh, so now Jesus, Jesus is talking about his glorification, his redeeming presence. A redeeming presence that is likened to a kernel of wheat falling into the ground, burial, to produce many seeds. In other words, the way to true life, the way to renewal, to redemption, the way to glory or glorification is the way of self-denial even unto death. 
Now, the specific scripture reading for us this morning began at chapter 12, verse 20. It's the fifth day of Passover. That day falls specifically within the time period during Passover when the Israelites would choose that sacrificial lamb without blemish and then slaughter it. It's the fifth day of Passover. Slaughter time, to put it roughly. Killing time. It's the time period, again, where the lamb is picked and slaughtered. Ironic, isn't it? Ironic that it's just in that time period that the religious leaders decide to have Jesus killed. Slaughtered. In the time when they were shouting out, Save us, O Lord! Hosanna! It's actually a quote from Psalm 118, verse 25, which goes, Save us, O Lord! O Lord, give us success! Is it any wonder when Jesus hears those shouts that, that his heart was troubled, as it says in chapter 12, verse 27? Or as it says even more graphically in Luke 19, verse 41, that Jesus wept? They didn't get it. The crowd, the religious leaders, none of them. The crowd saw Jesus coming to Jerusalem as their national hero, their new king, the national savior. Jesus saw himself as the Passover lamb being prepared for slaughter. The religious leaders, well, they they saw Jesus as a threat to their carefully developed, carefully scripted Old Testament religion. They were so blind, so blind, even though they had the entire Old Testament scriptures and all the prophecies, they were so blind that, as it says in Luke, for example, Luke 19, verse 44, they did not recognize God's coming to them. And they felt threatened. Look, the world's gone after him. We can't have this. The Pharisees, supposedly well-versed in the Old Testament Scriptures, had it all wrong. And they were willing to kill Jesus to keep their religion intact. That, people, is the problem with religion. You see, religion is only interested in maintaining itself. 
We've seen it throughout history. We think back to the times of the Reformation. Sadly, Protestants and Catholics killing each other for their religion. We see it every day in our newscasts when we see the different factions of the Muslim religion kill and maim each other, men, women, children, innocent children. It is so, so ugly. But it's all in the name of religion. Let me repeat. Religion is only interested in maintaining itself. Christianity. I'm almost skeptical about calling it a religion anymore because of all the religions in the world. That's why I prefer the word just say Christianity. Christianity is diametrically opposed to that in the sense that it's about losing oneself. Losing oneself in Christ-like fashion. Not only did the Pharisees have it all wrong, so did the crowd following Jesus from Bethany to Jerusalem. Shouting Hosanna. Shouting Hosanna, they envisioned a king, a national savior, not a lamb led to the slaughter to take away the sin of the world. Jesus, earlier in John, had identified himself saying, I am the light of the world. And now here in our passage this morning, Jesus warned that everyone would have the light just a little while longer. Just a little while longer. Of course, he was referring to himself because he was about to die. You'll have the light a little longer. But the religious leaders of the day couldn't see it. They were blind. They were blind to what was happening. The Greeks, the world, wanted to see Jesus. Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, had it right. He will proclaim peace to the nations, that is, to the world, and he will rule from sea to sea. But not, not via tra- trajectory that the people thought it would be. So the question then now begs, where are we at as believers in Christ, as Christians? Are we into religion? Or are we into Christianity? Are we, to put it in a summary form, are we in a preserving mode or in a serving mode? Are we ready, in the words of the beginning, opening words of Romans 12, are we ready to present our lives as living sacrifices of thanks 
Or in the words of Philippians 2, do we genuinely look after the interests, particularly the salvation interests of others, or only after our own interests? After all, Philippians 2 does say this, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, then look not only to your own interests, I dare say salvation interests, but also to the salvation interests of others. So again, are we simply religious or are we genuinely Christian? Eugene Peterson, I'm sure that most, if not all of you, are familiar with him, has this wonderful paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. And I personally love the words of introduction that he has in the message to the introduction to the, the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. And I'd like to basically quote that. Peterson wrote, Religion consists of the well-intentioned efforts we make to get it all together for God. And we can very well get, up, get in the way of what God is doing or seeking to do for us. I can't say it any better than that. I really can't. The new life, the Christian life, the born-again life, however, you want to, however we want to describe it, is like a kernel of wheat falling into the ground to produce many seeds, many kernels, dying, dying to produce fruit. And the words of Ephesians 4.22 and following seem rather appropriate to conclude this message with, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. And may we all be able to say, Amen. Let's pray for a minute. <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you remind us again of the deep call that you give to us as Christians. May we truly be, O oh Lord, Christians in the spirit of what we, con what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism. That as, as prophets, we confess and proclaim your name. As priests, we present our lives as living sacrifices of thanks. And as rulers, that we fight against sin and the devil in the assurance that in the hereafter, we will reign with you in Christ. Lead us, O Lord, to be genuinely Christian people in all our thoughts, deeds, actions, and words. Empower us to do this, Lord, through the mighty working of your word and Holy Spirit.
In Jesus' name, amen. Are we singing a song right now? Yeah, okay. <laughs>